Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Solo Van Shank. And, well, I don't seem to have a co-host this week. Uh, And that's because, as my name implies, I am doing the podcast solo. Uh, This is in keeping with our uh, example of just a few weeks ago, or just a few episodes ago, when Jeremy did a podcast by himself. Now it's my turn to go solo. Now, fortunately, in my case, uh, I have my uh, episode pre-prepared, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, But uh, first, to give a little bit of context for maybe new listeners, we are in the middle of a series of episodes on kingdom politics that is going through theology and politics as it's talked about in the Bible. And we're kind of hitting all of the... Uh, maybe high points or perhaps maybe tricky passages that people have to deal with. You know, this is our, uh, previously we talked about the uh, the passage in Exodus of an eye for an eye. And that was episode two. And, and soon we're going to be getting to episode three, which is tackling Romans 13 and figuring out what does it actually mean for us to be in submission to authority. And, you know, Romans 13 has definitely got a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, publicity recently in uh, uh, people's uh, in the churches, their disagreements over exactly how the church and the state should interact with one another. And so we're going to be coming down uh, and taking a stance on what we think Romans 13 is really saying and how people should be using it. But we're actually going to relegate that into the next episode. And, and the reason why is, uh, true to form, we're going to be looking at the context of Romans 13, and the immediate preceding context is actually Romans 12, which is a very interesting chapter in the book of Romans. And so I wanted to take some time and have us actually talk about Romans 12 before we get to Romans 13, just to lay a little bit of the groundwork so we can have all of those ideas set in our head before we really start tackling Romans 13. Now, if you're not really into this sort of thing, I would first ask, why are you listening to this podcast? This is kind of the thing that we do, right? But uh, uh, if you want to, you can feel free to just skip ahead to the next episode if it's been released already. And uh, if not, sorry, you'll have to wait another week or so before it comes out. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a fun time for uh, us to talk about Romans 12 for a little bit here. And when I say we talk about Romans 12, what I'm actually referring to is I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to give a message at my church on Romans 12 just a few weeks ago. And so for this episode, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be uploading the sermon portion of that church service where I was giving the sermon on Romans 12 and use that as the teaching that we're going to be doing for talking about Romans 12. Now, Because it was a sermon at a church, it takes a little bit of a different format than usually what we do here on the John 315 podcast. Uh, The focus was very much more on uh, making direct application to our lives and maybe understanding the sense of the passage. And there was a little bit less of, you know, digging into the uh, perhaps Greek words that are happening or references in the Old Testament. So just be forewarned that this might look a little bit different than a usual episode. But that being said, I was really pleased with how the sermon turned out. I think it was great content, and I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan from a few weeks ago, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, how are we doing on the live stream? Am I, uh, is my vocals coming through here? We're going to go with yes. Yeah. So I want to thank everybody for being here and being present. 
Um, we're going to do something uh, a little bit closer to what we've been doing kind of the last few weeks uh, with a sermon this morning, and that is uh, there's sort of a handout that's coming along, and we'll do a little bit of kind of teaching at the beginning, but then kind of my eventual goal is that we are all going to have the opportunity to engage with God's Word toward the end of the, the sort of the sermon message part, um, where we're going to have an opportunity to reflect a little bit on what this passage is speaking to us. Um, so just a little bit up front of what the uh, passage is. And looks like uh, Joe is uh, just finishing handing out all the handouts. So um, with that, I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, this morning we are going to be continuing uh, moving through the book of Romans together. So we've been sitting in Romans chapter 12 for the last few weeks, uh, and today we're hopefully just going to finish up the last piece of that chapter together. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 12. Um, we will be starting in verse 9, um, hoping that maybe we'll get some words up here. If not, the scripture is actually split up over sections in the handout, so you can also follow along there as well. That's uh, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Now, I encourage those who are able, if we could stand in reverence of God's word. Uh, I will read the passage, and at the end, I will prompt you with, this is the word of the Lord, and I encourage you to respond, thanks be to God. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness in honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal, be enthusiastic in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Uh, for in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this morning where we can come together in worship of you and to hear your good news proclaimed to us. We pray that you'd be working in our hearts this morning to open our ears and our hearts to hear what it is you have to say to us. We pray that we'd be receptive to your word, that we would be obedient to what it commands but above all, Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate in it the image of Christ, that we could be transformed into his image. And Lord, if there's anything that I would say today that is not from you, I pray that you would shut my mouth, that you'd let those words fall to the ground, but that in everything, your truth would be proclaimed. 
Amen. So we're in the book of Romans, and I want to start this out by asking a question to everybody. Like, what's, what's going on in the book of Romans, everybody? Like, what's, what's the deal? Does someone want to, you know, hit me with it? Like, what's, what's the book of Romans about? Maybe what's chapter 12 about? Where, where are we sitting with things? Go ahead. What's, uh, what's going on here? Yes. Yes, yeah, excellent, excellent. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to add? What's the book of Romans about? Yeah, Will, what's up? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that there's definitely this kind of ethnic division that's in the church that Paul seems to be very concerned with addressing. Yep. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah, so for the those listening at home, my apologies. Uh, we have uh, the, the book of Romans. It kind of has a couple pieces that it's going through. First, that there is the um, that Paul establishes that all people are sinful, and then moves on to establish that God has provided for us by His uh, uh, atonement that He has given us His own righteousness. And then Paul moves forward towards the end of the book to talking about how we can then, as the church, apply that truth in our lives. Uh, and then Will pointed out as well that there's this division between Jew and Gentile, and Paul spends a lot of time kind of talking about that. So it's a little bit of a summary of what's been said. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to add? Great. Well, I think that kind of hits all the main points. Uh, what I would sort of highlight about that is, yes, indeed, there are kind of two major sections to the book of Romans. There's everything before chapter 12 and everything after chapter 12. And before chapter 12, verses, or chapters 1 through 11, you get this long discourse that Paul gives on talking about some really heavy theology ideas. He's going through all people are sinful, both Jew and Gentile. Now let me respond to some objections to that. And then this is what God has done in history. Let me respond respond to some objections about that and then well no but what about the Jews have they been rejected by God and and it's sort of all of these really heavy pieces that Paul's going through but then you get this transition that happens right at the end of chapter 11 and then we move into this period where Paul is now going to say given that this is true from the first 11 chapters how then should we live um, and that's kind of a, a actually a pretty common form that Paul takes in the various letters that he writes and it's especially clear here in the book of Romans uh, and so what we're getting when we come to chapter 12 is Paul's kind of going through a laundry list of exhortations that he's giving to us. That's like encouragement, sort of these small bite-sized pieces of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Um, but it's all coming on the backdrop of all of the theology that he's just given us in the previous chapters. So he's, he's kind of trying to distill down all of these really heady, heavy truths into, well, what can I actually do today? Like, how can I be working in my life to inhabit this truth about who God is and who I am? And so that's kind of like where we're at. And you probably heard it in the, the message or in the reading that we were doing of, uh, you know, kind of all of these little piecemeal pieces. Uh, and so with that, I kind of want to ask, we're, we sort of jumped in the middle of chapter 12, but we had kind of been in verses 1 through 9 before that from previous weeks. So I wanted to ask again, uh, are there any exhortations that we got from the first section of the chapter that people remember from previous weeks that we've been talking about? So we've been in Romans 12 for a little while. Is there anything that's been sticking with people about what Paul, we've already heard Paul tell the church to do in the beginning of the chapter? 
Yes, yeah, exactly. There's very much this, don't compare yourself with others. People have different giftings. We should all focus on serving Christ in our own capacity. Yeah, no, totally. Are there any other pieces that's been sticking out with people? Yes, yeah, totally. That in light of what God has done, now we are making our lives this offering to God that we are giving glory and praise to him in everything that we do. Yeah, totally. Well, I just kind of wanted to get the juices flowing a little bit in your guys' mind for thinking through the individual pieces here. Um, And so with that, we'll we'll, we'll transition a little bit now. And so what I'm going to do is for verses 9 through the end of the chapter here, uh, there's a little bit of a framework that Paul is using for this particular uh, encouragements that he's giving us kind of in this big long laundry list here. So I'm going to give a little bit of what that framework is that Paul's using, and then we're going to together just kind of step through verse by verse and look at each one of the different encouragements. And at the end, we're going to have another period of time where we're just going to uh, provide space for people to, in your handouts if you'd like, to look through maybe there is one or two of these exhortations that is particularly meaningful to you. Perhaps the Spirit is using this as an opportunity to give you conviction or encouragement um, with respect to one of these pieces. That's kind of the format. Framework, look at some commentary, and then we'll have a time of reflection at the end. So moving into what the, uh, the framework is, Uh, that Paul is actually using. So I'll point your attention to verse 9. That's kind of the first section here uh, on your handout that's in the top left corner there. Uh, And the verse says, you know, love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And you'll notice that if you read through the rest of the section here, there is a bunch of contrasts that Paul makes about, you know, don't do this evil thing, rather cling to this good thing. And so Paul is actually introducing at the beginning of this little section uh, this idea of what the way we are supposed to be living our lives is abhor evil, cling to good. And you see that, that he actually loops back around to that idea at the very end uh, in the final verse of this section when he says, you know, do not, be overcome, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so it's again this, you know, don't be taken over by this thing, but instead hold fast to this thing over here. So let's just take a second and think about what abhorring evil and clinging to good looks like in sort of a general sense, and then we'll get into the details of it in just a second here. So it's interesting because this is pretty, I would say, kind of evocative language that Paul is using. You know, he's not saying, hey, like, you know, maybe don't like evil. Like, evil's not super great, right? You know, maybe kind of steer clear of it. No, he's saying abhor evil. He's saying hate it. Every fiber of your being should be set against evil. And what sticks out to me about that is it's abhorring is not something passive. It's like if I don't like broccoli, that's just kind of like, oh, well, I'm not really super fond of it. But if I abhor broccoli, I'm like looking for opportunities to stay away from this thing, right? It's like I want to avoid at all costs even coming into contact with this broccoli substance, right? You know, maybe to use a bit of a silly example. But it's, there, there is an active piece to abhorring or this, this hatred where you are setting your mind against this thing. It's not, it's not passive. It's not don't like it. It's really like, you know, get, get this away from me. This is disgusting. I hate this. I want to be far from it. And, and so the, the thing that I'm highlighting is it's this active thing. It's something that we're actually doing and participating in, this hatred of 
evil. Now, this might kind of sit a little bit weird for us sometimes, because we typically don't think about, like, oh, we're supposed to be about love, right? Like, I don't, what's this, like, hating thing? I'm not sure. It kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. I should be, like, hating something. But, uh, but, but what we see is that this, the, the, the kind of evil that Paul is talking about in the future sections here is, is not so much evil like, oh, those evil people over there, or, oh, that evil thing in society that we should be hating. Rather, what he's talking about primarily is the evil inside of our own hearts. It's our own inclinations to doing that which is wrong. And, and we'll see that in, in an example. I'm just sort of making that as an assertion, but you'll see it when we bear it out in the passage. And so what, what Paul is really encouraging us to is saying, don't compromise with the evil intentions of your own heart. Because frankly, that, that, that's pretty easy. It's like, if I'm frank, my own evil intentions are something that I love compromising with. It's so much easier to, you know, not have to try to be righteous in everything that I do, but it's like, ah, maybe just this one time I'll cut that person off. Or, you know, oh, this one time I'll give in to this rage in my own heart and, you know, you know, yell at somebody if they've cut me off on the freeway or, you know, something like that. Or, you know, maybe I don't need to be totally truthful in this particular situation. It'll be easier if I just kind of tell a little bit of a white lie. And it's always there's kind of this internal justification that we have in, in our own hearts of wanting to compromise with the own evil that's inside of us. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. And better yet, don't even just not compromise with it. We should be setting our minds against these evil intentions of our own heart. We should be actively hating that evil that is within us. So that's abhorring right there. Now let's shift over to cling to what is good. So it's not just don't be like that, but it's actually actively cling to what is good. There is, there is again, it's this active verb. If uh, you think about clinging to something, it's not that just that you're holding on to it, but there's this like constant exertion that you're putting into like maintaining a grip on something. Kind of the, the, the image that I really like is, I'm not sure, has anybody been like uh, inner tubing behind a, like a, 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 a boat or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you're, you're bouncing around, the wakes are going, and you're like, I'm not just holding on. I am clinging to that inner tube. I don't want to be like thrown off. And, and I think that's the image that Paul's giving us here is it's like you should be, uh, you know, putting in active effort into maintaining this hold. And kind of implicit in that, there's maybe this idea that Holding on to good is something that's a little bit elusive. It's challenging to continue to hold on to the good. And so what Paul is encouraging us is, no, you need to take active effort. It's continual. It's not just grab hold of the good one day and then, you know, grab hold of it again later. But no, you need to maintain this hold on the good. And so this is what I mean about pretty colorful language, right? Is it's like, you know, uh, abhorring is like, ah, set yourself against this disgusting thing and then cling tightly continually to this other good thing over here. It's, you know, Paul is kind of going out of his way to use sort of this pretty evocative language. He's making a really strong point here is what I'm trying to communicate for people. And, and yes, and so you've sort of heard it a little bit of what I've been saying of the, the particular thing is that these are both active verbs. These are things that we are doing, not just like things that we think, not just things that we believe, but how we actually manifest in action in our lives what we're actually doing. Cling to the good. Cling to the good. That's what he says. 
And so with that, we now get into this middle section. This is sort of a little bit of an introductory point, and now Paul is going to give us examples of this. Because it's a little heady to say, well, you know, abhor evil, cling to good, but what does that actually mean in, you know, my day-to-day -day life? How do I actually enact that? And so now Paul is going to give us a bunch of examples of different things that you can be doing that is the clinging to the good and of the abhorring of the evil. And so with that, we're going to start stepping through each of the verses here. I'll make some brief commentary on it. And uh, what the encouragement that I'm going to have for you is not necessarily, you know, try to remember all of the details or hold on to all of the pieces, but be listening to the Spirit of God during this time to see, is there perhaps an encouragement that Paul through the ages has for us that is, in my life, can I be abhorring evil and clinging to the good? So I'm hoping that over this next period, to be holding on to pieces that stick out to you more than necessarily trying to, you know, memorize all of the, the various points or things that I'm trying to make. So are people ready for that? Okay, great, let's go. So we start in verse 9 with this, uh, love must be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Then we move on to the next verse. It says, be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness in honoring one another. The first piece that I'll point out to everyone is the use of the word one another, or the phrase one another. Um, that's a really important phrase that shows up in a lot of different places in the New Test Testament. And primarily when it's being used, it's referring to the church community, like the local body of believers that a particular letter is being written to. So in this case, Paul is writing the letter to the church in Rome. And so when he says one another, he means, oh, all of you believers in Rome, this is the, the like relevant party. So it's specifically usually not referring to the broader culture or the broader society that the church is in, but the church itself. And so for us, if we are hearing this encouragement, it's like the person sitting right next to you is the subject of the one another that we're being commanded to. So when it says be devoted to one another with mutual love, it's saying, I, Jonathan, should be devoted to Will with mutual love. Not necessarily, you know, the, the exhortation is not about society, but particularly these relationships inside of the church. The other thing that I want to point out is, again, we get sort of this, these active verbs, uh, being devoted with mutual love and showing eagerness in honoring one another. So very much, again, it's like it's things that we're doing. It's not just like beliefs that we have about one another. It's not just that like, oh, I've got good feels about Will, but that no, I, I should be devoted to loving him with a mutual love. Sorry, I'm kind of picking on you a little bit, Will. I hope that's okay. Um, so let's like think about like what does devoted mean really, right? It's, you know, if, if I think about the word devoted, the example that comes to mind is, you know, you might say, oh, that guy, he's really devoted to his work. Now, does that mean like, oh, yeah, he, he clocks in and clocks out? It's like, no, no, but he like applies his attention to it. When he's at work, he's pouring his mind into it. You know, maybe when he's not at work, maybe he's still pouring his attention into it. And maybe that's not necessarily a perfectly healthy balance for him to have, but it is the reality of the situation, right? Or, you know, it's like if you are devoted to your spouse, it's not like, oh, well, I, I kind of like them. But it's like, no, I'm setting aside time to be intentional in my relationship with them. And that's the same kind of idea that's happening here, that we should be allocating time and attention and focus and prayer to the particular relationships that we have with one another here in this church body. 
He goes on to say, showing eagerness in honoring one another. I think about, you know, is, is the way that I speak about my fellow believers here in this congregation about being eager to honor them, eager to raise them up. Moving on to verses 11 and 12. It says, Do not lag in zeal. Be enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. The word lag here, um, this is in the New English translation. Uh, Some other translations like the ESV will render this like slothful. So it's like do not be slothful in your zeal. Which is honestly kind of an interesting thing. Like I'd feel like zeal and like lagging, like flagging, you know, getting tired and like, oh no, I don't want to be zealous right now. It's like, like in my head, that's sort of this interesting combination. And I think Paul is specifically trying to bring that to bring that dissonance of what in the world does it even mean to be zealous if it is slow to spring into action. You know, what does it mean that I am like zealous for the Lord or that I'm really enthusiastic about something if when the opportunity to act zealously, to act enthusiastically comes and I am slow to do so. And in particular, it says serve the Lord. So the piece here is in our service to God, in our relationships with one another, in our families here in the church, are we truly enthusiastic in our way that we're serving the Lord? Or are we slow to jump into serving God? To connect it back with clinging to the good and abhorring the evil, enthusiasm isn't something that's just like easy to hold on to. It's something that you need to cling to. It's this active, continual effort that you're putting in. That as opportunities arise, being ready to spring into action. It's kind of the idea here. It also says, rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer. It's kind of this really nice triplet that's all brought together right here. Uh, and and, and I, <laughs> this, this might be my favorite of the little sections right in here of this. Rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer. And I think Paul is kind of looping all of these three things together. That's a little bit of a cycle. That as we are rejoicing in hope, we have the motivation to endure in suffering. And in our sufferings, we respond by a persistence in prayer. And in that persistence in prayer, we are rejoicing in the hope that we have in Christ. And in that, we can endure in the sufferings of this world. And we do so by persisting in prayer. And it's this beautiful cycle that we're being called to. And again, it's continual action that's being emphasized, this enduring and suffering. It's not just sometimes enduring it, sometimes not enduring it, but persisting We get in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, you know, let us throw off everything that hinders and run with endurance the race marked out for us. It's not like kind of jog and stop, but like keep going, like continue in it, persist. And that that idea of persisting in prayer, it's not like pray frequently, but pray continually, persist in prayer. Uh, And in fact, for those who are a little bit more familiar with the book of Romans, this might connect you back to the eighth chapter where Paul is talking about all of creation groaning in expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, that there is this hope that we are looking forward to, and that it's, you know, our spirits that are groaning within us, and the Spirit of God who groans with word, you know, with groanings too deep for words, who intercedes on our behalf, that it's the Spirit who is praying for us. And the whole section is about enduring in the sufferings that we have in this world. And so Paul is making the direct application that here is this truth about the Spirit and creation and how 
the Holy Spirit operates in our lives, and now put it into practice. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Moving on to verses 13, 14, and 15. It says, Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So notice again here that it's contribute to the needs of the saints specifically. So once again, we're in the context of the relationship of the church itself. Um, and so this is the, the specific focus that Paul is having, that we should be contributing to one another's needs. So this is, you know, if you think about what James has to say to us of, you know, what is this faith thing that you speak about of when your brother says, you know, I'm, I don't have any food, I don't have a coat, and you respond, go, be warm, be filled, but don't give him anything to meet that need. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about here. When your brother and sister comes to you with a need, says contribute to it. And we get this little comma and this attached phrase of pursue hospitality. Again, an active verb. This is something that you continually do. And it's really interesting of like pursuing hospitality. And in this case, it's not so much that like, oh, hey, be ready to be hospitable when the opportunity comes to you. But it's like chase after opportunities to be hospitable. It's pursue it, seek it down. It's like chase down these things and grab them so that you can be hospitable. This is another clinging to the good. You know, it's like, it, it may be easy to sort of wait for, oh, yeah, like, it'd be nice to sort of have this person over for dinner so we could connect and, you know, develop in relationship with one another. But it's like, no, go seek them out. Be like, okay, when, when can we get something on the calendar, folks? Like, you know, when are, when are we going to come together and do this hospitality thing? Pursue it, is what he says. We're told to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse uh, I'm reminded of Jesus' words when he says, you know, it's out of the heart, heart that the mouth speaks. So when those who persecute me, if I curse them rather than bless them, it's not so much the words that I'm saying, but what that says about my heart. Is my heart that when I am wronged, I respond with self-righteous rage to curse you for what you've done to me? Or do I respond with blessing? The Lord bless you. And here we're beginning to see a little bit more of this abhor the evil and cling to the good. It's the evil in my own heart that says, curse you for doing me wrong. And it's hard. It's this elusive good to bless people who persecute me. And Paul's saying, don't just not compromise with that you know, desire to curse within you, but cling to the good of seek out this opportunity to bless. Mm -hmm. Moving on to verses uh, 16, well, I guess just verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. I'll point out again, uh, here we see this one another. So uh, again, this is the context of the church body. Of So live in harmony with one another, so that here we should be living in harmony with one another. And Paul clarifies a little bit about what he means by living in harmony. He says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. Uh, don't be conceited is sometimes translated, you know, do not be wise in your own sight. 
So it's very much this, you know, don't be proud. Don't think I am so great. I am above associating with you, my fellow brother or sister in the church. But that we should be welcoming one another together. That harmony is disrupted by cliques. That's the point that he's making. It's very easy to fall into that click behavior of, I've got my group of people that I associate with. It's very hard to cling to reaching out to my brothers and sisters, putting aside differences of perspective, differences of taste, but seeking after harmony and unity with one another. And again, you see haughtiness and conceit. These are, again, evil intentions of our heart that we should put away conceit, put away haughtiness, and instead cling to the good. Moving to verses 17 and 18, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. The first thing that I'll point out is notice the, 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 what's being referred to here is all people, not one another. So in this case, Paul isn't specifically talking about the church body. He's saying people in general. This is the society around you. And I think it's really interesting that in the previous verse, the command is live in harmony with one another, semicolon, and then he goes on to clarify. But, th- but that's just the command, live in harmony with one another. There's no qualification. There's no excuse. It's like you just got to do it. But then in verse 17, it says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. And kind of what sticks out is that the if possible here is this peaceable living with other people in our society. And and so Paul's point is, like, don't go seeking after conflict. You know, don't be seeking your, you know, your own justification in something, but try to live peaceably with other people. And, you know, but Paul allows for this idea that outside of the church community, there isn't necessarily a command that we can appeal to someone else to live peaceably with us. Inside of the church, we totally do. God commands all of us to live in harmony and unity with one another. And so there is no place for division here. But outside of the church community, there is not that same uh, there is not that same command or appeal that we have. And so it's very possible that people in society may not have peace with us. And Paul allows for that. But what he says is, if there will be no peace, there will be no peace. But it better not be because you could have made peace and didn't. We should cling to the good, cling to peace. Peace is good. Harmony is good. And if it's possible for us to seek that with our neighbors, we should do so. Moving on to verses 19, 20, and I guess, yeah, just 19 and 20. We'll we'll end there. It says, do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Now, the first thing that sticks out to me is the idea of God's wrath. Now, 
again, it's another one where it's the same with like abhorring evil where I, I feel in myself kind of this like, oh, but shouldn't we be about love? Like, what's this like hating? I mean, okay, it's evil. I guess we can hate evil is, you know, sort of the way that, that my, my own self responds to that. And the same thing when we come to God's wrath. I'm like, I, I think God's wrath makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes. I'm not super hip with, like, a God who's, like, seeking to enact his justice and judgment on wickedness. Like, that's a, it makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes. But I guess I would say, like, well, what is God's wrath? It's not just that God's this angry man up in the sky who wants to, like, mete out judgment on people because he's, like, capricious and angry or something like that. Rather, God's wrath is this judgment and punishment that he has for evil. That God has created a world, and he's created it good, and that when that good is violated, God is justifiably angry with that and punishes in response to it. And that's what God's wrath is. So what we see is it may make us uncomfortable, but I think that's primarily because our wrath is frequently unjust. But God's wrath is just. God's wrath is good. And in fact, what it says is give place for God's wrath. You know, don't avenge yourselves. It's this idea that if I'm avenging myself, if, if I'm avenging myself, if, if it's my wrath that's coming in response to being wronged, likely it will be tainted with unrighteousness. My own self-righteousness, my pride, my sense of, well, I shouldn't have been treated that way. When I come back with wrath, how can I separate those feelings out from it? And then, sure, there is perhaps some punishment that's meted out in response, which, I mean, maybe there's punishment that's deserved, but I am now culpable for the evil of my own heart in bringing that wrath to bear on someone else. And so, sure, maybe justice is done, but I have been unjust in doing it. Whereas, if we give place for God's wrath, if we, rather than bring in our own rage and wrath to bear on something, we say, God will repay. He ultimately is the source of justice. Then there will be justice, number one. And number two, it will be righteous, because it will be God who does it. And so it's the best of both worlds. We get to remain righteous and good, and the justice is done too. So it's just, it's like a win-win situation here. I'm very, very on board with this. Um, so that, that, that's my point. That God's, God's wrath, it's like, it is something that's good and we should be seeking it. Um, the reference of like giving place to God's wrath, uh, there, there's actually a, 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 a proverb that kind of correlates with this. It's a, a Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18. It says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. So it's, if bad things happen to your enemy, don't rejoice in that. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn his wrath away from him. It's this idea that we shouldn't be rejoicing when comeuppance comes around to someone who's our enemy because God is not pleased to see us self-righteous about, oh, yeah, they got what they deserved. The Lord isn't pleased by that. And if we do so, maybe God's wrath will evaporate from them and then they will not be judged for that. So give space for God's wrath. Let the judgment be righteous not unrighteous. Abhor what is evil, your own pride, and cling to what is good, God's justice.
And finally, this piece about, you know, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. Or maybe I'm not saying that quite right. What is it? Uh, oh, no, yeah. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping burning coals on your head. Uh, this is actually a quotation of Proverbs 25. Uh, and it's interesting in that quotation, the verse actually ends with, and the Lord will reward you. So it says, you will heap burning coals on their head and the Lord will reward you. And so it's interesting that Paul actually leaves that out of his particular quotation. But I think it does actually give us a little bit of extra color to what is being meant here. That, you know, and, and part of it is that what Paul's just said is like, you know, don't seek vengeance on another person, but leave it to the wrath of God. Rather, do kindness to your enemy and it will heap burning coals on their head. And now, you know, part, mar, partially we may think, oh, yeah, so that then that will be God's justice being dumped on them or, you know, something like that. But if you actually kind of like look into the commentaries a little bit on this, I am assured that uh, what the, the burning coals in this case really have more to do with the conscience of the other person. That this is, if I do kindness to my enemy, perhaps their conscience will be pricked by the goodness that I have shown them, and maybe they'll repent. This is kind of the reverse of what Jesus talks about in Luke 6, when, you know, he says, if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners lend to those who they expect to be repaid. This idea of applying here is, if you have this enemy who has enmity with you, what credit is it to you if you repay them with enmity? If you deny them kindness, if you show them wrath or hatred, what credit is that to you? Anybody can be an enemy to their enemy, but who can be kind to their enemies? It's easy to compromise with the own evil of our hearts that tells us we should, you know, they did us, they did me wrong, I should do wrong to them. It's hard to cling to the good of saying, but no, I will be kind to them instead. I will show them mercy. And is this not exactly what Christ has done for us? That we were enemies with him. We had enmity with Christ. But he shows us kindness. And in so doing, pricks our consciences that we repent and are now the friend of God. So let's emulate our Lord. Let's not repay evil with evil, but show kindness. Because perhaps they'll repent and we will win a brother or sister. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 